Good morning. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of introducing you to our guest speaker, who I think is a great honor for us to welcome this morning. Um, our guest speaker is the Reverend Dr. Andrew Sterling, um, who has just started a new role as an ambassador for the Canadian Bible Society. And prior to that role, actually, when I invited you to speak, you were still in this role, um, was the senior minister at the historic Timothy Eaton Memorial Church from 1998 to 2021. And so um, Dr. Sterling has had a long history of ministry in our city, of loving our city, like we say at Knox. And I think his, his passion for evangelism and missions and preaching um, are really, in a lot of ways, the things that we care about in our church um, and are trying to do as we follow Jesus and love the city and serve the world. So I'm very excited to hear Dr. Sterling preach this morning, and I think we should all Welcome him warmly this morning as well, and let's pray for him as he prepares to share God's word. God, we thank you for Andrew, for his long ministry in our city, for your faithfulness to him through those years, and the continued ministry that you've given him with the Canadian Bible Society, with the important work that they're doing here in Canada, certainly, but also around the world. We thank you that you've given him words to speak and to share with us this morning as we continue the celebration of our risen Lord. And we pray that you would speak through him, that you would give him words to say that speak to the life of our church and speak to our lives individually as well. Give us ears to hear and hearts to know and understand, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody, and I want to bring to you the greetings of the Canadian Bible Society, as has been mentioned, with whom I'm a novice, and in my first month, you're only the second place that I've preached since I've taken on this new role. So uh, it's a great privilege to do so. It's also wonderful to be back in this sanctuary. I have spoken here over the years at different events and was good friends, actually, with all three of the former pastors that I knew and senior ministers, whether it was Phil or whether it was Kevin or whether it was John, they were all tremendous colleagues of mine. And so when I was graciously invited by your current team to come and preach today, I was thrilled. And I did ask, however, that there is the caveat. I'm no longer the minister of Timothy Eaton. Am I still all right to preach? And I was given the green light, so here I am on behalf of the Bible Society, and it's a great privilege to be with you. I'm also aware, though, that this is historically called Low Sunday. And Low Sunday is a time when everyone sort of feels what was described by one person as a postpartum depression after Easter, where everyone sort of feels, oh my, we've had the glory of Easter, now we're going into the postpartum depression. Well, folks, we're not going to be like that this morning, and we are not like that this morning. There are no Low Sundays when it comes to the worship of the risen Christ, and it's just a joy to be with you let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we humbly bow before you in the light of the awesomeness of your resurrection. And we pray for the peace of the empty tomb to descend upon us and the joy of your risen presence to inspire us. May my words then speak of that truth, and may we leave having heard your word. 
through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. On Monday morning, after having enjoyed the glory of worshiping in a church over Easter, I was struck by a very great paradox, a great contrast. On the one hand, the radio had just come on and explained what had been happening in Mariupol and how they'd discovered bodies and how there were the dead, many of them children. And your heart sank, and my heart sank, and I feared for the lives of others. I changed channels, and who came on but Michael Bublé, singing a new dawn, a new day, a new life for me, and let's be joyful and happy. And I was stung by the contrast of these two pieces of news and music. The paradox was jarring. And the more I've thought about what is happening in the Ukraine, and the more I've been thinking about the Russian people and, and the struggles that they have in the midst of all this as well, the more I realize the paradox, even in a nation like that, that so many great Russians have had an influence on my life, whether it be a Dostoevsky or a Solzhenitsyn or a Rublev or a Chekhov or a Rachmaninoff, the great heights of art and music and even of faith. On the other hand, there are the Ivan, the Terribles. There are the Stalins. I'm afraid to say there are the Putins. There are the dark side, the dark side which taketh away life. I'm struck by the paradox of Russia being the place that produced the most beautiful icon of all icons, and this is the Eastern tradition, Easter Sunday. And to those who are listening, and I have friends in the Eastern tradition, Christos Anesti to you, Christ is risen to you. And in that great Rublev trinity, this incredible icon, you have a picture of God. On the other hand, it is the same country that destroyed the Tatars 70-odd years ago in Crimea and took the lives of innocent people and drove them out. There is this massive paradox. And if you and I are absolutely honest, when we are watching the news, when we're living our lives, we're confronted, are we not, by the paradox of having to deal with, on the one hand, evil and darkness, and on the other hand, the hope and the promise of life. And so for our inspiration today, I have turned to this incredible passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. And I can't think of a passage from the Word of God that is more apt for our world, for you and for me and for the whole of our society here in Toronto than this incredible passage, where he talks about that we praise God because we have a living hope, a living hope, notice the words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if this is true, how does that resurrection life impact us in our lives? 
If it is true, how do we ourselves, in the midst of the paradox and the conflicts of the world, continue to worship God? How do we uphold the power of the life of God when all around us we see destruction and pain and suffering and trauma? How do we do this? Well, we do it by looking at two key words, I suggest, in here. And Peter talks about a living hope. But he does so because it was in the context of the first century, probably around AD 64, that he was writing from Rome to Christians who were in Asia Minor, what would today be Turkey, in Bithynia and Cappadocia and so on. But these were people who were suffering persecution. They were people who were being imprisoned, we're told, who faced trials and slander and potentially death. They were being blamed by the Romans for the evil that was taking place in the world. And Christians became the focal point of the persecution. And so he is writing here in a passage that some believed actually was a biblical uh, litany, a biblical statement for those who were baptized, for those who were baptized, that in the early church, he begins with these words about praise to God, the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so to those who were persecuted, for those who are suffering for their faith, for those who are facing death, Jesus of Nazareth was their living hope. My, how that rings true for us today, too, and should be on all our lips. Why? Because what we have here is that word living. And no one knew the living presence of Jesus better than the Apostle Peter, who was the one who gave us this letter, this text. He is someone who, as we know the story, had not only followed Jesus throughout his ministry, but had denied him three times at a critical moment in Jesus' life before his crucifixion, who had been silent during the crucifixion, but who afterwards had become a witness along with many others to an empty tomb and a risen Lord. But more than that, this risen Lord who came from the empty tomb came to him. And in John chapter 21, it says that he was restored three times and told to feed the sheep. He was given a new mission. He was given a new powerful statement of what he is to do. Jesus, the risen Christ, came to him. So on the one hand, he saw Jesus dead, and on the other, he was encountered by Jesus who was living. And this Jesus who came to him as living was not, as some have said, a fabrication of the imagination of Peter. It's not as if he had had some sort of beatific vision. Oh, no. Jesus had come and was raised bodily and had come to him and had met with him and had given him a mission. If anyone knew the paradox 
of death and life, it was Peter. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who probably has been quoted a lot from pulpits over here over many years, knowing your former ministers, said this, do you want to believe in the living Christ? We may believe in Him only if we believe in His corporeal resurrection. This is the content of the New Testament. We're always free to reject it, but not to modify it, nor to pretend that the New Testament tells us something else. We may accept or refuse the message, but we may not change it. He said that to Time magazine of all places. The resurrection of Jesus then for Peter was a living hope because Jesus had come to him. But he also knew that this very same Jesus that had appeared to him, even after the ascension and after Pentecost, nevertheless could still come as a living Lord to those who are facing persecution, to those who were turning away from their faith in the midst of persecution. And he is writing a word of encouragement because their hearts are broken. They are worried about their future. And many of them are turning away from their faith. Well, I suspect, I might be wrong here, but I think when we ourselves, as a society and as a world and as a church, are bombarded with the continued negativity of a world that makes it appear that death has the final say, there are people who turn away. They turn away from the reality of the resurrection because they are overcome by the gravity of the pain of the world. In a lecture that I attended virtually this week from the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in the UK, in Oxford, a place where I have lectured myself, a wonderful pastor, a minister, a theologian called Tim Wambunya, who is from Kenya, described the state of the Anglican Church in the UK. And in it, he gave this most awful picture of the destruction of the Anglican church and where it was going, unless there was a renewal, unless there was a revival. And he said there are many people who have lost the connection between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and their own lives. It's as if we're talking about these things in the past tense, as opposed to the living Christ who is right here, right with us, right now. And he has a point. He has a point that if we as Christians, as believers, do not focus our heart and our lives and our souls on the resurrection of Jesus and his power and his life, then no matter what we do with the church, no matter what we try and say to our society, we will not have the power of the living one with us. But it's not only a living God. There is also a living hope. I love what a great Presbyterian, Frederick Beekner, uh, once said. He said, the resurrection means the worst thing is not the last thing. The resurrection means that the worst thing, death, is not 
the last thing. And I think one sometimes gets the feeling, does one not, when one listens to the media, for example, that even talk about Jesus is talk about him in the past tense. The historic Jesus, the Jesus that we study, the Jesus that we pull apart in the Bible, and in so doing, pull the Bible apart as well. And people think and talk about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus is something that is past, something that happened, but something that is dead. The New Testament and Peter talks about a God who is alive. I also think it's fair enough to say, and I don't know how many of you have seen programs looking at the science of the resurrection and questioning whether or not, in fact, the resurrection is something that historically happened or is real. But if you have looked at any of these things, we sometimes forget that the Bible itself and its witness is truth. And we get confused at times and believe that somehow the Bible is not truth, but any scientific analysis is. Some years ago, actually 2014, I was privileged to be the chaplain of the Indianapolis 500 motor race. Yes, I don't look like a speedy guy, but anyway... And uh, I had to preach five times on the Sunday morning, starting with the mechanics in, uh, in, in the alley, as it's called, Gasoline Alley. And the sun was rising, and there I was with these mechanics standing on snap-on toolkits, handing out communion and preaching the Word. I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, I've preached in cathedrals, and I've preached in some mighty places. I have never preached anywhere where I was overwhelmed by gasoline fumes as as I preached in the power of the Spirit, right? But after it, one of the chief mechanics of one of the best teams and I were talking to the side, and he says, Reverend Sterling, you're someone who has a great love of the Bible, so hence my current position And I said, yes, I am. And he said, you know, he said, I'm an MIT-trained engineer. He has his doctorate in engineering. And he said, and I actually help work on and partially design the engines of IndyCars. And he said, I've noticed something. He said, I have a manual here about the inner workings of a Chevrolet engine. He said, and I can pick this apart and I can tell you every single widget that is in there. And he said, when I fix my car, he said, I go to this. I confess I don't go to my Bible. He said, this is truth. This is science. This helps me fix things and know how to. He said, but in my life, in my relationships, in my relationship with God, in my love of my fellow brothers and sisters, I don't turn to that manual even though it's truth. I turn to the Bible, and there I find truth. And in that truth, he said, 
I find that the author is still living with me, that he lives through me, and he lives in me. And I can have all the manuals of motor racing, but if I do not have the truth of God, I have nothing. For him, for Peter, this is a living God and a living hope. But there's one last thing he says, and he says a lot in here. He says this is also about love. He says, you know, we have the salvation of our souls, which is the goal of our faith. We don't talk about that much, but we have something, we have someone beyond death. We have the breath, the suke, the salvation of our souls. That beyond everything that we know now, there is something yet still to come. But at the same time, he uses the word shelter, that we have a shelter right here and right now, that the anticipation of Christ coming again and of our eternal life is one thing that gives us hope. Even in the midst of persecution and death, you cannot destroy human life by simply taking it in its mortal form. Our life is that which has been created by God who is beyond, beyond a grave, beyond a grave. But at the same time, that living Lord is a shelter for us in the storms of life right here and now. And you might in your heart and your own soul be feeling the storms of life And if you do not believe that there is a risen Lord who is with you, a risen Lord who cares for you, a risen Lord who is with you, then where do you go for shelter in the storm? But this is why he ends with the most incredible phrase. He says, we now have the most inexpressible joy. To all of these persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, we have an inexpressible joy. Words cannot describe it. Although we have not seen Him, meaning Jesus, we love Him, and we believe in Him. And we know that that love sustains us, and that love keeps us, and shelters us, and saves us, and protects us. And wherever we face death and the paradox of the evil that often exists in the world, we know that it is Christ who triumphs over it. One last thing. One last thing. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book that I commend to you, many of you will have read it, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about how he had lost three people that he loved through different things, accidents, natural death, disasters. And he said he turned to a book uh, by a a, a man called uh, Rollo May. And Rollo May talks about the transformation that took place on his life on Easter Sunday in an Orthodox church. He said 
that he walked into an entirely dark church early in the morning, and one by one, candles were lit, and the Eastern liturgy was read, and a glow came around the whole place. And he said, I realized I had walked into darkness, but we sang Christ is risen, and we were consumed by light. We were consumed by light. My friends, whatever darkness might be in the world, no matter how difficult and depressing it may be, Christ is not dead. He is alive. And not only is He alive, He is alive with us forevermore. Resurrection, said Beekner, means the worst thing is in fact not the last thing. Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. Amen. Let us pray. Loving God, we come to you not as someone who is in a grave or in a textbook, but who is alive. And in our hearts, we thank you for your empty tomb, for your powerful presence, for your loving hope. May that hope be in our lives, not only today and not only just with us, but with all your people everywhere. Christos Anesti, you have risen. Amen. As something to reflect upon, in your heart and in your mind. If there was no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what impact would it have on your life? And Desmond Tutu, who I knew well from my days in South Africa, once said, we need hope like we need air. Where does your hope come from in life?